0: Sanford and Son of Sam will not be seen tonight.
1: Please enjoy the special presentation of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. This episode, we're going to be looking back at the entirety of Season 12, which was a time of huge change for the show. But before we get into all that, we've got some mail to cover. We will start with feedback from our episode on the Sontaran experiment. We had a few of our friends being as lukewarm towards this story as we were, with our dear friend Adam Wright saying, Poor Harry. We have to remember he was only included this season because they thought there was going to be an older doctor and he would have filled the action requirement. Also, with Tom Baker getting injured, I'm sure there was a lot cut back. Overall, this is a filler episode that I could skip, but I give it five melting stires. That was about (laughs) what we gave it to. Yeah, yeah. Kieran James Evans is of a similar mindset, stating, definitely a case of style or rather atmosphere over substance or plot. The music is great. Dudley escaped the synths of season eight for certain now. I'd probably go for around a six out of 10 at a push. Certainly not one I watch often. Kieran, buddy, six out of 10 what? I also
0: thought he was going to say style over substance. Hey. <laughs> so I'm a little
1: disappointed. That's all I'm saying. That being said, we did see some love for this story, with Mark Dunstan saying, What a great story this is. Tom Baker is excellent. I mean, he's probably the best thing about it. True. Definitely agree with the second sentence. And our friend Nick Rutherford also wrote in to say, This is a case of one man's meat is another's poison. When I watched this recently after not seeing it for years, I had very low expectations as I did of the whole season, to be honest, and this ended up being my favourite of the season. I liked that it was all on location and pretty adult, albeit not in a pervy potato way. <laughs> now, Don, your assertion of Styre being a pervert apparently resonated because we had a few other references to this. <laughs> John Hart asked, with Styre clearly being a sadist, should this story be retitled Fifty Shades of Sontaran? Oh. <laughs> I mean, I don't hate that idea. And our buddy J.M. Casey also honed in on this and referenced the novelization saying, You joke about the pervert thing, but in the novelization written by Ian Martyr, Harry himself, it's made pretty clear that Steyer really is a sadist and that he is getting a huge amount of enjoyment from torture. The description is so over the top, it's pretty great. Ian Martyr always seemed to want to push his novelizations just a little bit further, and he did the Ark in space as well. Last but not least on the Sontaran experiment, Don Moore said... I love Tom Baker. This is my Doctor Who. The Sontaran in this case is cool. Harry calls Sarah old girl a few times. Oh, and the Doctor wins the day. I imagine Julie didn't like the old girl references much and won't develop a crush on Dr. Sullivan. LOL.
2: Accurate.
1: However, Leela is round the corner, so Julie might get a girl crush. I crushed hard on Leela myself. I think we all kind of crushed hard on Leela for those of us who've seen her. She's pretty awesome. We shall see. Moving on to our bonus episode in which we covered the recent animation of The Abominable Snowmen, we had mail from a couple of our usual suspects. Nick Rutherford once again wrote in and said, always good to get a cheeky little bonus episode. I have a soft spot for this one as it was one of the first Target books I've read. At the time, I didn't realise it was the Doctor's face on the cover. I thought it must be the villain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one story later and you get the enemy of the world, or two stories later, I should say, where... Oh. Uh, the Doctor is the villain. And Beardo Beatnik wrote in to say, Well, after listening to your podcast episode, I don't think I'll watch this one. Sounded like it was four out of 10 Yeti butts. Great <laughs> listeners <as> always, though.
2: <laughs> Some of us didn't agree with the low ratings. So, to each his own.
1: And that wraps up the mail. As a reminder, we do love to hear from you all. And as you've heard, we do like to read out as many of your questions and comments as possible. So please do get in touch. You can send us an email at watches4d at gmail.com or connect with us on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at watches 4 d With that, we'll get into our season retrospective. And as I've already said, season 12 was a time of enormous change. We have a new doctor, new producer, new script editor. And while we get to keep Sarah Jane, we also have a new companion in the form of Harry. And, of course, some very different stories than what we were used to in the Pertwee era. But did it work? As a reminder of the format for these season retrospectives, we start out with our end-of-season awards, then we look back at our various scores and metrics from across the season, before finally moving on to some questions from our friends and followers on social media. So, diving straight into our awards, we will, as usual, answer in reverse alphabetical order, so Riley answers first, followed by Julie, then Don, and finally myself. Jumping straight into our first award, which is for Best and Worst Stories, and the nominations are... Robot, The Ark in Space, The Sontaran Experiment, Genesis of the Daleks, and Revenge of the Cybermen. So, Riley, we start with you.
3: I think it's pretty obvious which direction I'm going with this one. I say best story for me is The Ark in Space. It is incredibly influential and is just a great mood setter and it's got a tremendously crisp pace. For worst story, I am stuck between Revenge of the Cybermen and The Santaran Experiment, But since the Revenge of the Cybermen is longer than the Suntaran experiment, I will go with the Revenge of the
1: Cybermen (laughs) then, so... All right. Julie.
2: This might be a surprise. Best story is the Ark in Space. A lot of what Riley said is true. The atmosphere was wonderful. The music is great. Didn't have a lot of filler. And the Doctor had a really good speech that was thrown in there. Overall, I did really enjoy that one. Where Story is the exact same for the exact same reasons. (laughs) I was in between Revenge of the Cybermen and the Suntaran Experiment. I said that the Revenge of the Cybermen was worse, and it probably boils down to that there was two episodes in Suntaran Experiment and four for Revenge of the Cybermen.
1: That's fair. I get the feeling we might have a clean sweep on this one. So let's hear from Don. Well, for my best story, just based
0: on my reading alone, it's going to be Genesis of the Daleks, purely on the fact that it did what it set out to do. It's really well done. Liked it a lot. Not the serial I would try to introduce people to Doctor Who with. In that case, if I had to choose this season, it would be The Ark in Space. For the worst one, I think it's pretty obvious it has to be Revenge of the Cybermen. It was not interesting, and no one really acted in character, especially the Cybermen. And the whole gold thing was just dumb. (laughs) So, yeah.
1: Don, you and I are on the same page. My favorite story of the season is Genesis of the Daleks. It does what it sets out to do. On top of that, we have Terry Nation actually putting in some effort for once rather than just drawing his standard plot points out of a hat and trying to piece them together. And he actually does a good job with it. And I feel like the entire cast is performing on the next level and the director does a great job with the entire story. So really has to be Genesis of the Daleks, although the Ark in Space was very close behind. As everyone's pointed out, that is also an outstanding, outstanding serial and really, really introduces the Tom Baker era and the Philip Hinchcliffe era and says, this is what we're doing. So very close runner up there.
2: And Robot sits directly in the middle.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Robot's the one everyone forgets about. And then my least favorite, like everyone else, Revenge of the Cybermen. I think, as I said at the time, it feels like it's either a first draft or a 27th draft. It doesn't feel like it's been appropriately written. There are plot points that kind of don't quite make sense that were clearly left over from an earlier draft. It's just a mess. The Cybermen are not good. They don't necessarily need to be there. And we have that goddamn Vogon Civil War that no one cares about. Definitely my least favorite of the season.
3: I think the difference here, as we discussed between Revenge of the Cybermen and the Suntaran Experiment, is like that old joke of people complaining about a bad restaurant. Yeah, the food is terrible here. Yeah, and such small portions. Except here we're like, yes, small portions. Thank you, Suntaran Experiment.
1: <laughs> yes, please give us less. Next up, we have our categories for best and worst moment. This is one where we don't have nominations, so it can be anything from any point in the season. And Riley, we start with you once again.
3: This was really strange because I had a really tough time thinking of a standout moment because looking back at everything, the things that stood out to me that I really enjoyed that I thought were unusual or new for the show, and maybe that's because of the change in Doctors, was the wonderfully delivered quips by the fourth Doctor, like who's the homicidal maniac and others. And I just really enjoyed that. There's just something about his comic delivery that really just hit home with me and did a good job of carrying through what we have already discussed to be not so great serials. For worst moment, I think it's going to be the shootout in the caves in Revenge of the Cybermen. I I, I didn't say it then. I mean, I mentioned it, but I didn't say it then that It reminds me of a bit from the old Naked Gun movies where there's a shootout and the (laughs) editing cuts from one side to the other side in a tight framing shot. Each edit adds more tension back and forth until they cut to a wide shot and you see they're only three feet
1: apart. That's basically (laughs) that shootout. So, Julie, what you got?
2: I also struggled a little bit with best and worst moment, really both. Nothing seemed so blatantly obvious for these I'm going to go with best moment. I already alluded to the fact that I really enjoyed that speech that the doctor gives in the Ark and space, especially, you know, he's just walking around. It's very atmospheric and he's talking about the human race and all the things that they do. So I just really thought that that was good because it highlights a really good doctor moment. And that's kind of where I started to see him as actually being the doctor. Worst moment, it might seem pretty obvious, but I'm going to say, let's talk about that tank and robot. <laughs> Don't think I have to go into much detail on that one. The runner up for that is anything that had to do with the Vogon Civil War,
0: yeah, done. Let's hear yours, okay. First of all, I'm glad that someone brought up the tank and robot <laughs> You're because welcome. it deserves its moment, not in the sun, but you know what I'm talking about. Best moment was difficult for me, but it comes down to most of Tom Baker just being the doctor especially when he's being both funny and slightly insane. But I do like that one scene in Genesis Adalic where he just announces that he's a spy. That was really clever and probably off-putting to the characters in there. For my worst moment, it's a tie, and it's from my favorite serial. Either the ending freeze frame or the we're all (laughs) holding hands and floating in space bit.
3: Oh, God. (laughs)
0: And I must say, I am shocked that Riley didn't mention
1: either one of those. So I'm kind of impressed. Yeah, I think both of those are pretty bad.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Particularly when the direction of that story otherwise is so strong. In terms of my ones, like Julie, I think it's one of the speeches. And I did for a long time ponder it being the Homo sapiens speech from the Ark in Space. But I went for the other big one of the season. And that's the do I have the right speech from Genesis of the Daleks. Just thinking about that, it still sends a shiver down my spine to this day. It's such a wonderful moral quandary. And this doctor decides at the time that he doesn't have the right. And you know full well other doctors would have no hesitation. I think we all know the third doctor would do it. The tenth doctor would probably do it in all his time or angst. Um, I think two would hesitate. No, no. You see, two would make Davros do it by accident. (laughs) Yes, he would. In terms of my worst moments, I also went for something from Robot, And in my case, it was the Doctor's post-regeneration insanity. The whole karate chop a brick, run on the spot, and jump up and down on a skipping rope. That just does not do it for me. And I'm glad we moved on from that very, very quickly. Next up, we have our category for Best Lead Actor. And there are three actors who are eligible here, obviously. Tom Baker as our new Doctor, Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith, and Ian Martyr as Harry Sullivan. Now, I already know who Julie is not going to pick, but Riley, let's hear who you are going to pick.
3: It's so clearly Ian Martyr, right? It's totally (laughs) Tom Baker. Absolutely. No doubt. Tom Baker. He grabbed the role from the get-go, made it his own, like it was always meant for him. It just... Fit like a glove i recall out of all the debut episodes for doctors that i have seen so far i don't believe i have seen someone take to the role so easily right out the bat
1: it's fair julie it's
2: obviously tom baker it might sound like as we go through the season that i am not the biggest fan however the thing that i'm not a fan of is the stories themselves it is not tom baker His line delivery is excellent. His comedy is excellent. He has some really great speeches, things like that. So he's doing a wonderful and phenomenal job. I wish it could be Elizabeth Sladen. But unfortunately, the powers that be decided that they didn't know what to do with her. And that makes me very sad.
1: Done. It's Tom Baker. Move on. That's it. And I'm in complete agreement. Tom Baker, he comes in, he nails it. He owns it. It's his show now. John who? (laughs) Okay, next up, we move on to best supporting actor and worst supporting actor. Now, we were going to do something a bit different with this this season in that we were going to nominate people over the course of the season. And dear listener, you may have heard us do that. However, what we realized about an hour before we were due to record (laughs) is that none of us actually kept track of who we were nominating. So we're going to do better when we do season 13 with that.
2: Way to call us out, Anthony.
1: Well, I'm calling myself out on that, too, because everyone except me thought it was me. So we are back to our old traditional version of... Pulling it out of our ass. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So, Riley,
3: we start with you. Well, I did remember who I nominated, and that is James Garbett as Ronson in Genesis of the Daleks. I absolutely loved how he showed the conflict of his morality, overcoming his fear to stand up against Davros. I liked the character and the performance was very strong. For Worst Supporting Actor, this one was tough because honestly, I don't think this was as easy as it has been in previous seasons. So... I'm not saying that it was a bad performance, but it just kind of seemed a bit much. So I'm going to have to go with Michael Kilgriff as Calculon, aka Robot
1: and Robot. <laughs> oh my God. Nice. Julie, who have you got for these?
2: Forgive me. I was too lazy to look up the actor names. Apologies. Best supporting is Kettlewell and Robot. I think he's actually one of the most nuanced side characters that we've had in a long time. Because first, you just see him as that eccentric, crazy scientist. Then you realize that he's in on what's going on. And you're like, oh, well, now he's a terrible person. But then he comes to the realization that they've gone too far. So you actually see a complete evolution of his character. And we don't necessarily get that with a lot of characters in this season.
1: So that's Edward Burnham as Professor Kettlewell. And for your worst supporting actor?
2: My worst? I couldn't choose which one, but really any of the guys in the Centauran experiment. <laughs> I didn't particularly care for any of them. One of them you could actually sympathize with, but the other ones were just awful people. And therefore, I just did not care.
1: Fair enough. I had a feeling he might go for that.
2: Yeah, I couldn't choose a particular one because they're all pretty terrible.
1: Don, let's hear from you.
0: Well, for best, I went with Peter Miles as Nider from Genesis to Daleks because he's just so calm and collected and creepy and just he handles that role really well. I don't really have a suggestion for worst because, as Riley said, I didn't see any particularly bad acting. Throughout this entire season, I mean, obviously there were characters I liked better, and I still wonder about how the Cybermen were portrayed, but that's more of a writing and directorial issue than
1: acting. So we're going with not applicable for Don. And for my choices, best supporting actor, hands down, Peter Miles as NIDA. He is just everywhere in that story. He's always skulking around in the background. Listening in, just hyper aware of what's going on. He's the one who's leading people into traps, doing Davros's bidding. He's just amazing. Full marks to Peter Miles there. For worst, I was going to say Christopher Robbie being the extremely over-emotional cyber leader. (laughs) (laughs) But as Dom pointed out, to some extent, that's on the writing and the directing as well. And in this case, it takes three to tango. So I'm not sure how much I'm being unfair on the guy if I pick him. I
3: don't know. He did give the world's most aggressive shoulder rub.
1: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, some days I feel like I could deal with that. <laughs> not going to lie. So I think I'm going to stick with it. I think some of it was definitely down to him. He should have been told to tone it down, but he didn't. So going with Christopher Robbie there. Next up... We have the awards for Best and Worst Villains, and our guideline nominations for this one are the Scientific Reform Society from Robot, the Wirrin from the Ark in Space, Commander Steyr from the Sontaran Experiment, Davros, Nida and all the Daleks, or any combination thereof, from Genesis of the Daleks, and the Cybermen from Revenge of the Cybermen. Riley?
3: Best Villain. Gary Davis, the writer of Revenge of the Cybermen. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it would be Davros, Nider and the Daleks. Sounds like it should be a band name, first off. Secondly, I would like to focus particularly on Niter as the best villain. The Daleks are going to be the Daleks, and Davros is just batshit insane. But for Niter, he should be the most reasonable of the three of them. And yet he still proceeds down this homicidal path, which makes him an absolute bastard. <laughs> and for worst villain, I guess I will have to go with the s- scientific committee and, and the robots with their multiple countdowns and having their bluff called. They just seemed very inept at being villains.
0: Are you saying that when someone invades your meeting, you shouldn't let them put on a stage show? <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> That's just polite. That's all I'm saying. I think that's a reasonable call out there. Julie, who have you got?
2: I chose Davros and Nider as a duo, minus the Daleks. The Daleks are mainly there because we are familiar with them, but it's really Davros and Nider who are running the show in this particular serial. So obviously it's them. I actually want to give a runner's up for the Scientific Reform Society. Because unlike Riley, I think they're also the most likely villains in today's world. And while they, yes, may be a little bit inept, it's scary how true that could possibly be. That's why I'm throwing them out there. They also are very Nazi-esque. And again, those were real.
1: They even have armbands. And gloves. They give speeches with gloves on. Dead giveaway. And who do you have for worst villain, Julie?
2: It's the Cybermen. (laughs) Their motives were terrible and they were super emotional. I'm done with them.
1: (laughs) All right, Don, let's hear yours. Once again, I have
0: to go with Nider because, I mean, the Daleks, we generally know what we're getting, which is either going to be effective villains or some sort of comedic weirdness. Daphros was just a lunatic, so I felt it kind of difficult to take him as being effectively scary. Whereas Nidor, every time he was on screen, you really wanted to know what he was up to. That's fair. And for the worst, it's obviously this version of the cybermen (laughs) they don't act like cybermen
1: they barely look like cybermen what the hell (laughs) and i'm with you worst villain undoubtedly the cybermen they're just not good in this serial and i think it's probably a good thing we don't see them again for quite a while in terms of best villain i actually went for davros While Nydar is there in the backgrounds, in the shadows, to me, he very much plays second fiddle to Davros. And the lengths that Davros is willing to go to to see out his project is ridiculous. He facilitates the destruction of his own people's city, basically committing genocide. He stalls for time when the elite are trying to overthrow him so the Daleks can get there and exterminate the elite for him. By the time he realizes that he's lost control, it's too late. And as he's going to hit that big red button to destroy the Daleks, they kill him. To me, he just runs rampant over that story and has so many good moments. That entire dialogue with the Doctor about the virus is just brilliant. So Davros is the winner for me here. Next up, we have our Best Director award and, of course... My personal favourite, the Richard Martin Award for Worst Director. And our nominations here are Christopher Barry for Robot, Rodney Bennett for both The Ark in Space and The Sontaran Experiment, David Maloney for Genesis of the Daleks, and Michael E. Bryant for Revenge of the Cybermen. Riley, off you go. It's
3: gotta be Rodney Bennett for Ark in Space, it's so, so good at creating mood and making those sets look fantastic. He made the arc in some scenes look chillingly sterile, and then in others, dark and chaotic. It's just such good work. I could not think of a better directorial job other than the last one I can recall having this much of an effect on me was Invasion of the Dinosaurs. The Dickey goes to Michael E. Bryant for Revenge of the Cybermen. Not just for the shootout, the poor makeup choice for the aliens where they're just slathered in something that can barely move their face. The video work, we already talked about how the Cybermen were used and how they were depicted. And the model work at the end, also not very, very good. It's just poor,
1: very, very poor. All right, Julie.
2: Best director, David Maloney for Genesis of the Daleks. It might not have been my favorite serial story, but he does a really good job of making that atmospheric. And maybe the clams weren't the best well done, but that's not necessarily his choice because they did have designers. So he did what he could with that. I'm going with the worst director. I don't think anyone was so bad as to deserve the Dicky. So we're just going with worst. And I also agree it's Michael E. Bryant for Revenge of the Cybermen, a lot of the same reasons that Raleigh said. I also was about to say I was potentially going to go for Christopher Berry for Robot, but then I remembered that not all of that was his fault. So I forgave him.
1: Don, let's hear what you're thinking.
0: Okay, best director, I've got to go with a tie between David Maloney for Genesis to the Daleks, which I have expressed my admiration for many times now, and for Rodney Bennett for The Ark in Space, which... For every reason Riley said, he definitely deserves props. For worst, I'm I'm not necessarily going to give a dicky for it, but I have to mention Christopher Barry
1: for the tank and the bad CSO.
2: I thought the tank wasn't Christopher Barry.
1: It was still shot by him, but it was on Barry Letts' insistence. Yeah.
2: Yes. That's why I forgave him.
1: And there's a lot of other, just the CSO,
0: not the mm-hmm. overall story, just for that.
2: That's fair.
1: Yeah, and I think for me, I'm with you, Don. It's Christopher Barry for Worst Director. And I'm going to do it. He gets the full (laughs) dicky. While there was undoubtedly some interference from Barry Letts, and, you know, it was Barry Letts' last serial as producer, so he clearly wanted to be directing it himself, but he'd just done Planet of the Spiders, and they obviously weren't going to let him do two in a row. So there was some interference there, and that led to things like The Tank. But there are so many other things that I feel... He should have spoken up and stopped and perhaps done better. The design of the robot with its pincer hands. mm, No, he should have said, guys, come on. Is this really the best we can do? (laughs) Likewise, I mean, Riley, you nominated Michael Kilgareth as Calculon as the worst supporting actor. (laughs) He should have known when to rein him in. That is the director's (laughs) job. Dude, calm down. It is close. Michael E. Bryan definitely deserves to be in the conversation, but I think Christopher Barry just edges ahead on this one.
3: So that's two full-on Dickies and two semis.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Riley, never change. For best director, I am going with Rodney Bennett for all of the reasons Riley mentioned, just his ability to shoot the arc both as a bright, sterile environment and still make it creepy, but then to do the exact same thing in the dark. That takes some skill to do both really, really well. And overall, just the feeling of dread and the atmosphere of that story comes down to his direction. So absolutely, Rodney Bennett for The Ark in Space. Moving on to our very last category, we have the best and worst use of music. Riley, as always, Start with you. To me,
3: the best use of music was right at the start of the Ark in Space, and maybe it's because that was the first official break off from the old production team and moving on, and everything was going to go in a whole new direction. And Dudders was using synth again, but it worked, <laughs> and the ambient noise as well did such a good job in that serial. So to me, that was the best use of music. Now, worst use of music was also tough because. I didn't really have anything negative to say about the music this season. It isn't fair what I'm about to do because it fit what was being asked of it. And as Anthony alluded to earlier, it really does seem really out of place for the character. But in Robot, when the fourth Doctor is acting and doing his really zany thing with the karate chopping and the skip rope, and I don't know why I'm most suddenly talking like that. But anyway, Dutters gave a theme or gave some sort of like musical cue to back that up, that kind of zaniness. Which is what was required of the scene. But in retrospect, it definitely seems really out of place in the show and for the character. So I'm not saying Dutters did a bad job. I'm just saying that is the
1: worst use of music. All right, Julie, you're one with strong opinions about music. So I'm very curious as to what you're going to pick here.
2: And you should know me. There's always going to be probably two because I have problems deciding. I really like In the and Space, similar to Riley, but I'm more focused on when they're actually walking through the empty corridors on Nerva. It, it does set the atmosphere really well. Again, using low reads as Dutters is really good at when he doesn't do things with the synth. So I really enjoyed that. Genesis of the Daleks came in very, very, very close second. And I'm talking specifically when the Daleks were coming down the corridor towards the very end especially considering what our previous Dalek theme
1: was. (laughs)
2: This was not just a vast improvement, but it was actually kind of a little frightening and I really enjoyed what they did there. Worst music. This should be obvious. If you don't know by now, I'm not a fan of Carrie Blyton at all. It's too much weird synth. There's a lot of weird, bizarre saxophone and other things going on. I know they like to do certain things when it's a Cybermen story, but it's just not to my liking, and I'm sorry. But just anything with Revenge of the Cyberman that was over-the-top synth, not good.
0: Uh, done. Pretty much what everyone has said. Uh, the Ark in Space was probably the best because it was, to me, atmospheric. It really set the mood, and it was perfect for that story. While trying to think of the worst one, the only thing I could think of was there was one where Dutters didn't do it and I hated it and but I had to go Revenge back through the and Man. see who it was <laughs> and it turns out that it was Revenge of the Cybermen with <laughs> Blyton and Peter Howell.
1: Yep, that's fair. I know that particular score seems to drum up a lot of very strong emotions, both positive and negative, so I'm not surprised we had two of you picking that. My choice is best use of music is actually music not being used. And that is Dudders knowing when to employ silence in the Sontaran experiment.
2: That could either be Dudders or it could be the director, but yes.
1: Yeah, but that complete lack when they first beam down and there's meant to be no one on the planet and it's just so quiet really works well. And I'm going to cop out. I don't have a worse use of music. I actually thought there was nothing particularly offensive this season. So complete cop out for me.
2: Another non-applicable?
1: Yep. Only one from me. The other one was done to be fair. And that brings us to the end of our awards. Very quickly, we're going to look back at our scores and metrics. Overall, when we average stuff out, Genesis of the Daleks was the best serial of the season, according to our scores, coming in at 8.88, followed by The Ark in Space, 8.75, Robot with a very solid 7, Sontaran Experiment kind of below par, 4.5, and then coming in last, Revenge of the Sidemen with a 3.25. That gives us a season average of 6.48, which brings it just above what we had for season 11, which was uh, 6.43, but below all of Pertwee's other seasons and also below seasons two, three, four and five.
2: I'm not actually surprised because it kind of follows what we saw pre-Pertwee in that there are really good serials and really bad serials. Whereas somehow in Pertwee's era, they were all just pretty solid stories. Not usually amazing, but not bad.
1: They were consistent. Yeah, I was going to say there was a level of consistency until Terence and Barry in season 11 decided they'd rather be making Moonbase 3. Having a Delgado helps a hell of a lot. It does. True. Looking at our individual scores, three of us had Genesis of the Daleks as our best. Myself and Don gave that 10 out of 10. Julie gave it 7.5. Julie, that was your highest score. (laughs) Julie, you actually had the lowest highest, if that makes sense. So 7.5 was your highest. You also had the lowest lowest, giving 2.5 to Revenge of the Cybermen. And overall, you had the lowest average of the season. Your season average was 5.5.
2: I was very harsh.
1: Yeah. Julie gave this season the finger. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, Riley, your highest, the Ark in Space, 10. Your lowest was joint between the Sontaran Experiment and Revenge of the Cybermen. You gave both of them a 4. And your season average came out to 6.8. Don, looking at you, your highest, Genesis of the Daleks, 10 out of 10. Lowest, Revenge of the Cybermen, 3. And season average, 6.6. And then last but not least, for me, my highest, Genesis of the Daleks, very closely followed by the Ark in Space. So Genesis, I gave 10. Ark in Space, 9.5. My worst was Revenge of the Sidemen with a 3.5, giving us a season total of 7. So I scored this season the highest out of all of us because I'm a huge (laughs) fanboy. Looking at some of our running metrics, we added 6 to the camp count over the course of the season. So that gave us 128 over the course of the show so far, which I'm pretty chuffed with. The I'll explain later count, we had just one in the Sontaran experiment. And if I recall correctly, Julie, it was you that mentioned it. And I believe it was Sarah Jane who said it. So that takes us up to a total series count of six. Quarry Quarry, everyone's favorite. (laughs) We had just one quarry this season in Genesis of the Daleks. Total series count so far, 19 quarries. And more to come. The jelly baby count. I actually have a slight correction here in that we had previously said that the first example of the jelly baby count came in the Pertwee era, in The Three Doctors. We were wrong. There was actually an instance of jelly babies being offered by the second doctor as far back as the Dominators. So we had five instances of jelly babies this season because it's Tom Baker and that's kind of the fourth Doctor's thing, which now gives us a total series count of seven. And then last but not least, our newest metric, started with The Ark in Space, is the Philip Hinchcliffe women count. And this is given (laughs) for the number of women with speaking parts who are not companions. And rather pitifully, between The Ark in Space and Revenge of the Cybermen, that number is two. (laughs) More to come next season. With Don's least favourite segment out of the way, True. We move into (laughs) our questions from our listeners, and we're going to take these somewhat thematically. So we start off with some general questions about season 12, and we'll start with our good friend, Matthew Brewer, who asks, do you think season 12 was more of a Let's Dicks voice, (laughs) Let's Dicks, (laughs) than a Holmes Hinchcliffe voice?
2: Oh, my God. Yeah, you can totally tell that it's moving to Holmes Hinchcliffe. As we've said, it's gotten darker. And I can just point out the lack of women as the big signal that this is something different. There we go. I said it.
1: It's interesting because there are definitely elements there. Holmes famously disliked the idea of returning villains and wanted to avoid them as much as possible. But he inherited a bunch of scripts that were commissioned by Barry Letts, And so the idea of having the Sontarans, then the Daleks, then the Cybermen, that was Barry Letts. But Holmes completely rewrote them to give them a different tone. So you kind of get a little bit of both, but I definitely agree with you, Julie. The vibe, hugely Holmes and Hinchcliffe.
3: I feel that since we're just in the beginning of Holmes and Hinchcliffe, it's kind of hard to say exactly from my perspective because I have not experienced it completely. Like their true voice, this is them just starting out. So we'll see.
2: Also, having not known what Holmes' opinion was, other than just hearing it from Anthony, I wouldn't have been able to have any comment as to whether or not they (laughs) wanted previous fill-ins.
0: Yeah, it feels very mixed. Well, with Robot, you do definitely get a lot of the Let's Dix influence. But saying what you said, you can kind of tell it doesn't really have its own voice yet this season. And that's
1: probably why it's such a mixed bag. So hopefully we'll see more of that in season 13. And we might come back to this question then if we remember to do it. Next up, our friend the Whovian gal. How successful do you think season 12 is as an, albeit mild, soft reboot for the show? As this era has the reputation for being Doctor Who's golden age, do you think it's currently living up to expectations? Or are there more elements from the Poe era you wish the show had held on to?
3: I think that it was successful in introducing a new Doctor, referring back to our previous answers on the previous question, it's still trying to sort itself out overall. It's trying to figure out what it wants to say, how it wants to be. I'm sure we have other questions coming up later about Sarah Jane and Harry, which is a huge part, I think, of the difficulty with the season. So I'd say that it isn't living up to expectations other than the fact that Tom Baker is absolutely awesome as the Doctor, and he is what makes this season worthwhile, in my opinion. Outside, of course, Ark and Space, which is awesome.
0: I think this particular season has some really standout episodes. Yes, Riley, that includes the Ark of Space. But I don't necessarily think this season is what has a reputation for being the golden age. This feels very transitional and aside from knowing I was going to enjoy Tom Baker I didn't really go into this with any expectations as far as elements from the Pertwee era that I wish had stuck around
1: Sarah Jane being an actual character (gasps) yeah I was gonna say that exact point I wish they had done something better with Sarah I mean we've complained about it a lot over the course of the season they just didn't seem to know what to do with her so just didn't
2: I obviously am thinking it's not living up to my expectations. It doesn't help that as the person who has seen the least amount of Doctor Who of everyone on this podcast, you go in and everyone speaks of Tom Baker as if he's like God or something. You get a lot of these expectations of, oh my gosh, Tom Baker is the best. It's the one with the scarf, blah, 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 blah. And while yes, Tom is great. I love his characterization. I love his quirkiness. However, I particularly don't like how dark the show is getting. I like Doctor Who that is inspirational and kind of hopeful, I guess. And I don't necessarily seem to be getting that here as much as I did, let's say, you know, the second Doctor Who is my favorite Doctor. I don't want to say I'm disappointed in that I think the quality isn't there. I'm disappointed because I don't see the sense of wonder that I like to get out of my Doctor Who.
1: Interesting. Well, the nice thing for you, Julie, is there are three different production teams over the course of the Tom Baker era. So if you continue to find that Holmes and Hinchcliffe don't do it for you, another production team will come along before Baker's out.
2: And, you know, again, how they don't know how to handle women is also a huge problem for me.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I think I've already voiced my opinion. I think it's heading in the right direction. I do like my Doctor Who dark, but equally, I don't like the fact that Sarah Jane is just being put in a corner and not really being used. So heading in the right direction... There are some faults to it. All right. Next up, a structural question from Adam Wright, which is, how do you feel about the approach to this season being one big adventure linking each story directly to the next? And did the absolute lack of the TARDIS interior take away from the magic that is Doctor Who? I
3: loved it. I really enjoy season long themes and overarching plots. I really do. I like a continual string across a season. And I'm fine with not seeing the inside of the TARDIS, just as long as we still are able to go to alien planets somehow, some way.
2: I also enjoyed the fact that it was kind of a, I don't want to say a continuing story, but in the sense that you see them go from the one place to the other to the other and kind of how they link up like puzzle pieces. It kind of reminds me a little bit with having like an overall story, let's say season one and season two, where it's Ian and Barbara trying to get back home. So everything seems to kind of fit in where it's like, okay, where are we going next? Oh, the TARDIS got lost again. He can't see the TARDIS doctor. Good job. So I like that kind of linking. So it's not just a story, but it shows how you get from one place to another, I guess. I actually miss the TARDIS interior. I really like all the things that they do. I like the noises. I like all of those things. So I do miss it. I don't think it's 100% necessary, but I would like to see it.
1: Don, any thoughts on this one?
0: I really like having that slight narrative connective tissue between the serials, mainly because like Julie was just saying, it reminds me of the early seasons where it seemed like every serial would take off for the last serial ended. And I really like that. This season, I haven't really missed the TARDIS interior, but if it went on for too much longer, I think I would. And I'm hoping it means when the interior does come back, we'll get some kind of redesign.
1: And I think for me, I liked the narrative aspect of it. Again, felt very much like early Doctor Who, which we all loved. I'm going to be a really bad fanboy until I read Adam's question. I had not even noticed that we didn't see the TARDIS interior this season because we're still getting from one place to the other. And the TARDIS interior scene, more often than not, doesn't really serve any narrative purpose. We're going to this place. Oh, let's see what it is on the scanner. Okay, it's safe to go out. So... I just didn't miss it. We got where we needed to go and had some good adventures. I honestly didn't think too much of it. Okay, we have a question on our new Doctor. Obviously, one was going to come up. And this comes from Alan Seiler, who asks, Thinking strictly of first seasons, how do you think Season 12 compares to Seasons 1, 4, and 7 in establishing and developing a new Doctor character? And which actor established himself most firmly in the role in their first season?
3: Well, it's because Baker, as we've already said before, he fits in so well. But I think that's him working his magic. I don't believe this season did as well as Seasons 1 and Seasons 7 outside of the Doctor in establishing the character. I just think it's Baker's amazing acting that makes him fit so well.
1: I'm going to disagree a little bit in the... (laughs) Come on! Not a little bit. Come on, kick his ass! Fight, fight, fight! I don't think Season 7 did a great job of establishing the Third Doctor. And I love Season 7. But the Doctor we see in season seven is different from the Doctor we even see in season eight. And I know we've talked a lot about the third Doctor and his arc between season eight and season 10 when Joe leaves and that softening. But it's like they make him more of a dick in season eight than he was in season seven. So I kind of struggle with how well did that season actually establish the third Doctor and why did they feel the need to course correct after that? I think season one, they had to nail that. Hartnell came in, he was the Doctor, and he had a very strong supporting cast with him, but that had to be fantastic. And season four, Troughton showed up and just owned the show from day one for me.
0: But with both season one and seven, you do have Doctors that start off a lot more abrasive, that soften up over time. That's true.
1: Yeah,
2: but establishing a character doesn't mean an establish it is what they're going to be in their final form.
0: Oh, I'm not saying that. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. And to say that Troughton was perfect from the get-go. Sort of lay that out there.
1: I mean, he was. And (laughs) honestly, Baker coming in here, he reminds me of Troughton. He just comes in and aside from those moments of weirdness at the beginning of Robot, he comes in, he's his quirky, wonderful self. And I think looking at Alan's specific question, which actor established himself most firmly in the role in their first season, Baker comes in and establishes himself. And I think he's up there with Trouton on it. So I would say the two of them. Is Baker acting, though? (laughs) That's a good question.
2: Yeah, I think the first Doctor does it best. I honestly really do. The moment you see him, you're like, what is his deal? And also, why are you so grouchy? And that's 100% what the first Doctor is for that entire first season. And obviously, yes, he had to nail it or else there probably wouldn't be a show. While I love Troughton and To me, he was the doctor immediately. At the same time, I think for some people, it took more time and the show probably could have done a little bit better job of establishing as as a character, despite my love of Troughton. That's kind of how I feel with Tom Baker. It took me a serial story to get into Tom Baker and even then... I could see some people still struggling, but it's not necessarily, I think, the actor's fault. It's partially the stories. So it's that weird question of, okay, well, the actor might have the right mannerisms and establish himself as the doctor, but that doesn't mean you know who the doctor is when you immediately meet him based on the actor's skill, if that makes sense.
1: Any further discussion on this one?
2: John, do you have a strong opinion other than telling Anthony he was wrong?
1: (laughs) I mean, I usually enjoy doing that, but not at this time. (laughs) Cool. All right. Next up, we're going to look at some of the companions. And we start out with a question from Kieran James Evans, who asks, Overall, how do you think this season's TARDIS crew have worked? Not (laughs) great, Kieran. Not great.
2: (laughs) 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 It's not.
3: Too much Harry, not enough Sarah Jane. I don't think I need to go into more detail than that.
2: For me, it's partially that. It's also, I think previous Doctors had stronger connections to their companions So when we talk about them, the first Doctor with Babs and Ian and and Vicky especially, those bonds are really tight. Troughton, Zoe, and Jamie. Jamie is his right hand man for almost the entirety of his run. You've got the third doctor with Joe and oh my gosh, Joe and the third doctor is phenomenal. But I really don't get a feeling that the fourth doctor really gels as much with Sarah Jane or with Harry. So it's not just Harry taking over, but it's I don't really actually see as strong of a bond of the doctor with either of those two companions.
0: I think you nailed it. We know Sarah Jane from her time with the third doctor. I don't really know who she is during this particular season. And aside from Harry being an accidentally sexist idiot, <laughs> I don't know anything about him. He's just there and occasionally the doctor bounces some dialogue off of him and calls him an imbecile. <laughs> I'm not sure if that makes a character.
1: Yeah, it's very hard to disagree with that. So I'm just going to say agreed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Couple of questions on Sarah. Sarah. And Blue Box Charm asks, what was Sarah Jane's strongest moment this season for you? And Kieran James Evans asks, so far, Sarah with the third Doctor or Sarah with the fourth Doctor? I think we already answered that.
2: Obviously, it's Sarah with the third Doctor, but I want to touch upon the strongest moment. The strongest moment is in Robot. And if you notice, that isn't under Hinchcliffe. It is under the previous showrunners because she sympathizes so much with the robot. And you can just see the struggle. She's crying. She is really struggling in that one. And you get to see a lot of the impact that it has on the companion. And then the rest of the time, they don't know what to do with her. So Robot is when she shines the most.
1: I would agree that it's Robot, but from my perspective, it's the fact that she still has independence and agency in Robot.
2: That's also fair.
1: Yeah, from the very beginning, she's like, hey, Brigadier, I want to go and do a piece on this Scientific Reform Society. Can you get me an in with them? And she goes off and does that on her own while the Doctor's busy convalescing from his regeneration. And she's very much driving the story and still part of it. In a way that she just hasn't been at any point since. And I think it's that inquisitiveness and allowing the journalist to be a journalist that makes that her strongest moment for me. And 100% Sarah with The Third Doctor for the exact same reason. Agency and independence.
3: (laughs) I think it's clear. It's... Obviously, Sarah was the third Doctor. I was feeling more hopeful in regards to picking a strongest moment of the season for her. After going through and slogging through what she went through this season, I found that moment at the end of Revenge of the Cybermen where she's on the ship with the Doctor and Harry's being an idiot over the communication systems. And she basically kind of just tells him off and gets irritated with him and shows how much of an idiot he is while she's dealing with this crisis. I felt like that was perhaps a path for the show to take with how they can balance them out and i think having her just kind of show i guess for lack of a better word hand over harry would be and have bickering between the two would be a more enjoyable path than what we've had instead of her just being either knocked out or comatose for half of a serial so i saw that not necessarily as being of course the strongest but i was trying to be optimistic about where they might go with her in the future and i was hoping that would be it i don't know when
0: i hear the question i'm like I feel like Sarah was barely in this season. (laughs) Because for me, Robot feels like what it was, which was a holdover from the prior season. And she's been unconscious, it seems like, for most of
1: this.
0: (laughs) So it's like, relationship with what? I don't know. That's fair.
1: Next, because of how vocal we've been, we seem to have drawn several questions about Harry. So, we will start with David Campbell, who says... The character of Harry was created to handle fight scenes if an older actor was cast as the fourth Doctor. So from that perspective, he was already redundant once Tom Baker was cast. The Watchers don't seem too keen on Harry. So how would you make a male companion work better for Tom's Doctor? Also, similar question from JM Casey, who says, You've said a few times now that at least some of you think that Harry is in the way. What's the trouble with Harry and how could they have fixed him?
2: Well, you also left an interesting thing that he pointed out in the last sentence of his question, which was Would some adventures without Sarah perhaps have improved the character by not having to be in her shadow? The problem, what I have with that statement, is that I believe that Harry is overshadowing Sarah Jane because since they don't know what to do with Sarah Jane, they knock her out and have her do nothing. So that's actually where my problem lies. Now, what to actually do with him. That's a little difficult because you don't want to take away just a male companion because I actually get really frustrated when the doctor only has female companions, which is obviously what happens all the time in New Who, because there's that hint of maybe it gets romantic or if it doesn't happen that it gets romantic, that someone's going to create fan fiction in order to make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) so i generally like to have someone there from a guy perspective i do kind of like the more for lack of a better term blue collar like the jamies and those other people who don't necessarily are like as smart or even trying to compete as as smart as the doctor but it's still good as a juxtaposition of the doctor being more academic smart and the companion maybe having a more grounded view is probably how i would go about getting another male companion in there.
0: I think you're very close on how to fix Harry. I've come to kind of like him throughout the season, but it seems like they're not giving him enough of a personality aside from making him kind of a upper-class twit. You either need to lean into that and make him a pure comic relief character or give him a personality. Make him someone that the Doctor would want to have around as a friend, and especially someone that has some kind of relationship with Sarah. Not necessarily a romantic relationship, but something where they can banter back and forth, like Jamie and Victoria would do from time to time. Or Jamie and Zoe, just where you can see them just hanging out.
2: And they have enough of a difference of worldview that it leads to interesting conversations. Not, uh, I'm smarter than you, but... Yeah. You think this way, but I think this way. And both things lead to the actual like fix of or the conclusion of whatever needs to happen.
1: Yeah. And I think personally, I like Harry. I know a lot of people back home who aren't too dissimilar from Harry <laughs> in the upper class twittiness. <laughs> if I recounted the number of times that I've been called old chap or old boy, it would be quite a few. So that doesn't offend me in the way that it does, Julie. That's just very much how a certain subset of the British class system is, and I'm okay with that. I do think the fact that he constantly overshadows Sarah is the issue. And candidly, I think sharing it, sharing the limelight, sharing the storylines, maybe you have a story where Harry is in the foreground and Sarah's not, but then the next one, you switch it over. And then for a six-parter, there's certainly plenty of space for both of them in that. The sad
0: thing is you mention Harry overshadowing her. He's not
1: really, because he's not doing a whole lot either. True. But he's the one who's always hanging out with the doctor. Yeah,
0: he's at least there for the doctor to talk to.
1: I think having her just more present would help. Having her be part of the action would certainly help. But in terms of fixing Harry, just, yeah, that banter aspect. And you kind of started seeing it between the two of them in Revenge of the Cybermen. We even commented on how much Sarah seems to dislike him. So... I think that would all really, really help.
0: That's what we need.
1: We need a soap opera crew on the TARDIS (laughs) where everyone is scheming and backstabbing (laughs) against each other. We're going to save that for the 80s. (laughs) Big hair
0: and shoulder pads,
1: man.
3: I don't think there's much else to add in regards to this. It is very difficult... And I can imagine back then even more so to write a male companion that wouldn't be stereotypical and that there's a romance with Sarah Jane or or the competition with the Doctor. I was thinking, I really liked what Don was saying, that if he's going to be an upper-class twit, let's just go all the way with it. Let's just go full comic relief. And maybe that's what was happening in a little bit in Revenge of the Cybermen when Sarah Jane was really kind of looking down at him and speaking down to him and there was big and I really enjoyed that. I think part of the question was how do you make a male companion work better for Tom's doctor? The doctor takes up so much space. Tom Baker's doctor (laughs) is huge in personality. And so I feel like it'd be very difficult. And I think he could work just with Sarah Jane. I would think the only thing you could add to it is maybe if you had like a one season male companion that was a person who was like, broken in some way, has some sort of character flaw that they needed help with and they learn and that gets resolved by the end of the season. But it needs to be something concise, not something that's just expected to be a relationship that could go on and on and on until, you know, contracts aren't renewed. I must admit,
0: I do have regret about this season that relates to Harry, which is that when it comes to Genesis of the Daleks, I didn't think of calling that episode
1: wham, bam, thank you, clam. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and i have Brilliant. to live with that regret <laughs> just one last note i do agree having him be the comic relief would have been spectacular all right we have a couple of story specific questions both coming from our really good friend mike muncher who on genesis of the daleks asks did the addition of davros improve the usage of nation like nationly nation-esque ah national tropes did the one-eyed, one-armed, rolling, grayish people-hater make the Daleks more interesting, or was he the equivalent of giving Han Solo's last name a backstory? I know how I feel, but what about you guys? And yes, he typed "you guys. <laughs>
2: I love Davros. I think that it was very important because we get tired of just hearing exterminate, exterminate, or what have you, although again, early Daleks were very verbose. So I like having there be a mastermind kind of behind like the start of them. I know that it kind of goes all in later (laughs) and he's around for a while, but I really enjoyed him as a character.
3: I'm going to be a little uh, controversial here, but I do have a criticism. I feel that he is a tad too one-dimensional. I do enjoy that he uses a lot of crazy, clever schemes, and he's very, very smart. I like seeing him put his intelligence to use with his plans, but he just seems just crazy, and <laughs> there's nothing else there. It's just crazy person who wants to kill everything.
2: And I love him for it.
0: <laughs> I have a love and hate relationship with Dave Ross, as I like to call him. <laughs> Mainly because as a villain within the episode, I think he's wonderful. Great. As a concept in Dalek lore, I don't really like him that much because to me, the Daleks are what happens when you don't
1: think about repercussions and just about survival and getting your own way. Yeah. I think from my perspective, I think Davros is great in Genesis of the Daleks. He 100% is one of the things that really makes that story and it makes the backstory of the Daleks interesting. Do I think that he should have returned time and time again or should he have been left exterminated at the end? I feel like maybe he should have been left exterminated at the end. But what can you do?
2: And I don't know how often he comes back, so I can't really comment on that aspect of it. I do know that he makes some appearances in New Who, I believe, so I could totally get that...
1: All right, and then last story-specific question, also from Mike. On Revenge of the Cybermen, what do you think led to the completely counterintuitive conversational cadence the Cybermen confabulated, not to mention their definite lack of, lack of emotion? Arrest this man for alliteration.
0: (laughs) See, I was going to compliment Mike for trying to
1: screw Anthony up. I think that's (laughs) funny. And that's why I deliberately took a little longer to... (laughs) Slow it down. It's fine. To go through my words.
2: I think it could be a combination of a few things. Could be that people want to try to make the Cybermen their own. So if they're going to try to do that, they're going to try to make them different or try to make them evolve in some form or fashion. That often leads to not good things. And that's what this is. And also, it doesn't (laughs) help that, as Anthony mentioned earlier, when they kept rewriting and rewriting and rewriting the script, you're going to lose things. And I think that didn't help.
1: I completely agree with that. I've got nothing to add to that other than just... Please stop. Let's not ever have the Cybermen like this again. (laughs)
2: Yeah. They were better in Return of the Cybermen, the Big Finish, because they were actually not as emotional. And I applaud Big Finish for that. Or the original script for that. Sorry.
0: They just weren't Cybermen. That's the thing is they'd made it any different alien. It would have been fine. But we've
1: seen Cybermen. We know what they're like. And these certainly weren't that. All right. And we have one final question. And that comes from someone called Colleen Neal, whoever that might be. And she asks, what is your favorite color stripe on the Fourth Doctor's scarf? Olive green. I'm going with purple. I was going to go with a green. You can both go with green.
2: Yeah. That's allowed. I'm going with the fringe. <laughs> the fringe is the best part of the scarf. You're welcome. I had to be that person. Sorry, Anthony. <laughs>
1: Hey, you have Colleen to answer to on that, so I'll let you decide whether or not you're scared of her. Okay, well, with that, we're done with Season 12. We will be back next time when we kick off Season 13 with Terror of the Zygons, which I'm personally really looking forward to. But until then, as always, thank you so very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Stire Over Substance, was recorded on Wednesday, the 26th of October, 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D and you can also email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you find yourself as the showrunner for Doctor Who, don't forget to give the companions things to do.